This audio file is a production of Chiasmos, the University of Chicago's international and area studies multimedia outreach source. For related audio and video, or for more information about the project, please visit chiasmos.uchicago.edu or internationalstudies.uchicago.edu. The World Beyond the Headlines Lecture Series is a collaborative project of the University of Chicago Center for International Studies and the International House Global Voices Program. Our nationally recognized programming is made possible with support from listeners like you. Secure the future of World Beyond the Headlines programming by making your gift online at alumniservices.uchicago.edu slash giving. Please specify World Beyond the Headlines as the area of giving. The World Beyond the Headlines lecture series is supported by the McCormick Foundation, the Norman Wade Harris Fund, and generous contributions from listeners like you. Good. Hi, I'm John Schumann. I'm a general internist at University of Chicago here at the Medical Center, and uh, I'm delighted to be introducing tonight's speaker. I'm also with the Human Rights Program uh, of the University of Chicago. Uh, tonight's event is being brought to you by the World Beyond the Headlines, and the World Beyond the Headlines series is a collaborative effort between the Center for International Studies, International House, who is hosting us tonight, and the Seminary Co-op Bookstore. Uh, on the table in the back, uh, Dr. Lowndes' book is being sold tonight. You can also find a flyer listing all the upcoming World Beyond the Headlines uh, lectures for the remainder of the fall quarter, and we hope you can join us next week. Wednesday, November 5th, the day after Election Day at 6 p.m., when Arvind Panagaria will discuss his new book, India, the Emerging Giant. I'd also like to just mention that uh, tonight's event is being audio and video recorded for broadcast on the web. And in about a month, tonight's lecture will be available for free download linked to the CIS website, uh, Center for National Studies, at cis.uchicago.edu. Or you can visit the University of Chicago's International and Area Studies multimedia outreach source at Chiasmos, which is spelled C-H-I-A-S-M-O-S dot uchicago dot edu. About 10 years ago, I was a resident uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, a very progressive state where some of my mentors uh, in my residency program were trying to uh, get a referendum on the ballot to uh, get universal health care in the state of Massachusetts. And by a simple uh, yes or no referendum, uh, they were going to force the state, in a sense, to provide health care for all people in the state. Um, and it was uh, a brutal contest. One of my mentors came back. He had been passing out leaflets and flyers and sort of looked at me and said, wow, we were over at the School of Public Health and the medical school there, and Dr. Lown was there with us. I thought, who is this Dr. Lown? I need to know more. Well, Dr. Bernard Lown is a cardiologist. Um, he is a professor emeritus of cardiology at the Harvard School of Public Health and a senior physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Um, he's internationally known just for his work in cardiology uh, as the developer of the um, direct current cardio uh, fibrillator. <laughs> so think of your shocks. Um, but it's almost his second career that's of perhaps more personal interest to me. Um, he has been involved in healthcare advocacy on issues like single-payer national health insurance, and I see Dr. Young in the audience. We're glad to have you here tonight. Um, in 1980, he co-founded the, um, uh, the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, 
and in 1985 was a co-recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize for his work in trying to use the power of his academic credential to help prevent nuclear war. Um, Dr. Lown is the author of many, many uh, scientific and journal articles, book chapters, uh, as well as several books. His most recent book, which is back on the table uh, there tonight, is called Prescription for Survival, A Doctor's Journey to End Nuclear Madness. Came out in July of this year, and we're very fortunate to have him visiting the area tonight. Uh, and he will talk to us about his book and his career and his work. So please, let's give a warm welcome for Dr. Bernard Laun. Dr. Schumann, friends, colleagues, ladies and gentlemen, it's good to revisit Chicago and see a lot of familiar and friendly faces, some going back more than 50 years. Should I identify them? Quentin Young, Tom Madden. I'm grateful to Nat Love for helping organize this meeting and to Jamie Bender. In a week from today, a momentous decision will have been reached about the fate of this nation. And we are all preoccupied with that. So what relevance is this evening to this election? Excuse me. Let me give you a essence of the book, The Prescription for Survival. At the height of the Cold War, when the world was teetering at the edge of extinction, a partnership between an American and Soviet doctor launched a world movement. This movement helped end the Cold War and gained them a Nobel Peace Prize. The book Prescription for Survival concentrates on five brief years from 1980 to 85 and recalls an untold story of how doctors helped change the traverse of history. It is a tale of an unbelievable Alice in Wonderland traverse adventure, if you will, where I found myself one person removed from the chief of the evil empire, Mr. Brezhnev, a country that was claimed was about to destroy us. The threat of nuclear war between the USSR and the USA was unlike any ever faced facing humankind. Before war said winners and losers, victors and vanquished, nuclear war had neither. It was a perverse dance macabre, genocide of the victim and suicide of the aggressor. Unfortunately, the nuclear embers still remain lit 
in no small measure stoked by the United States. Now, I will read you just the beginning. I will not burden you with too many readings, but just from the very prologue. This book exposes the hidden machinery of history. Monumental happenings, barely visible to the public eye of the time, shifted the trajectory away from nuclear war. Major actors in the unfolding drama were not statesmen, but outsiders, medical doctors, who were more comfortable wielding a stethoscope at their patient's bedside than jousting on the political stage against mushroom clouds. Essentially, there are two narratives here in relating how this began. There is the nuclear narrative and the Russian narrative. To give you a flow of these unusual events, which began more than 58 years ago, at the time I was involved and obsessed, actually, with the issue of sudden cardiac death. I was reaching an apogee in my medical career, and I wasn't about to become engaged and distracted from this issue, but quite by accident. I listened to a Britisher by the name of Philip Noel Baker, who had just won the Nobel Peace Prize. And he intoned like some Hebraic prophet about the fact that none of us in the hall that night will see the year 2000. <clears throat> I was obsessed by the fact that there was no future for humankind. And I called together a group of young doctors, I being the oldest in that group, I was then 40, and we began to try to deal with how do we confront this overwhelming issue? And being young academics, we decided to do research. And our research involved the virtual bombing of Boston. We bombed it with multi-megaton hydrogen bombs and extrapolated the consequences. And what we learned, though much of the evidence then was classified, that of Boston's three million people, only one million would be killed outright, one million would be seriously injured and would die, another half million could survive if they had adequate medical care. Out of Boston's 6,000 physicians, only 1,000 would be left alive. Now, if, if a physician had to confront and deal with 1,700 patients, if he or she spent 10 minutes with each patient, they would see that patient for the first time 17 days later. And they had no medicine, no instruments, no electricity, no sanitation. 
It followed that most fatally injured would never see a doctor to assuage their pain before an agonizing death. And we reached a conclusion that there was no answer that the medical profession had to offer other than euthanasia. But the medical profession was not empowered to kill For a disease without a cure, the only course was prevention. Furthermore, there was no place to hide. The results we then engineered to have these conclusions published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And that was quite an accomplishment because at the time, it was an extraordinarily reactionary medical journal. The consequences of these articles, <coughs> excuse me, was intense. In fact, the military turned to us for information. We received 600 reprint requests from the military. They wanted to engage us as consultants because they claimed we knew more about the medical consequences of nuclear war than anybody alive then. We received worldwide publicity and helped awake the public to what was confronting them. It launched the Physicians for Social Responsibility as an organization speaking out about this issue. We proved that doctors had something significant to contribute in the nuclear debate. And we put an end to what was going on at the time, namely America was borrowing underground to secure a mythical safety. And our articles proved without a doubt that the most dangerous place to be was in an underground shelter. Now, despite our work, despite the arousal of the public, and we helped contribute at the time to the, to the atmospheric test ban agreement of 1963. We even got a call from the White House to help them in that campaign at the time. But all our efforts were to no avail. A nuclear arms race continued with the largest military buildup in history. By that time, nuclear destructiveness equaled about one million Hiroshima's. A friend of mine, a four-star admiral by the name of Noel Geiler, who was in charge of targeting, nuclear targeting for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, confided to me that by the late 1970s, we had exhausted targets in the Soviet Union. And he said they were then targeting meadows and outhouses in the Soviet Union. Our minds decouple, thinking ceases at the scale of such perversity. So I was prepared 
but abandoned anti-nuclearism in the 70s during the Vietnam War. And uh, there is another connection, and that is the Russian connection. I mentioned earlier that I was involved with the issue of sudden death. And sudden death is the leading cause of fatality in this country. It claims more lives than all of cancer, and someone succumbs every 90 seconds from it. Yet the medical profession at the time was indifferent to the issue because it was deemed as the consequence of a massive heart attack for which nothing medicine had to offer. My own view and the experiments I then carried out indicated it was an electrical derangement of the heart rhythm and could be reversed and could even be prevented. It was, in fact, an electrical accident of hearts too good to die. But the NIH wouldn't provide any support. And as I said, there was great indifference to this issue. <clears throat> I had a wild idea that if Russian, that Russian cardiologists could help focus American attention to this issue. Remember, in 1957, the Russians launched Sputnik. And a few years later, Yuri Gagarin circled the globe. And it created consternation in this country. A great psychological depression that the Russians, who were technically so far behind and scientifically so underdeveloped compared to us, would beat us at this game. So my reasoning was quite convoluted, if not Talmudic. I thought if I could persuade a Soviet cardiologist to become involved in sudden death, the NIH would open up its coffers, and I would be on my way to stardom. And one other thing that compelled me was some of you remember Van Cliburn. Von Kleiburn was a nobody until he won the Tchaikovsky competition in the Soviet Union. He won it with enormous chutzpah. He played Tchaikovsky's first piano concerto in Russia, and he won this glorious prize and became a folk hero in the United States and had a ticker tape parade in New York. I pretended and hoped to be that Van Cliburn in cardiology. <laughs> now, one is reminded of a remark of George Orwell. Some ideas are so stupid that only an intellectual could have thought of them. <laughs> the connection with Russia began in a very improbable way when I made a guess on the basis of a pair of shoes. The year was 1966. There was a Congress of Cardiology in New Delhi. I was standing near an elevator. A well-dressed young man was approaching. As I looked down to the ground, I saw a pair of scroungy shoes. I say, he must be a Russian. <laughs> and I say, are you a Russian? He says, da, da, yes, yes. And I immediately pounced on him to discuss with him the issue of sudden death and would he invite me to Moscow to lecture on it. 
And he said, of course. And it turned out to be not just an ordinary cardiologist, but Eugene Chazov, who was the leading young cardiologist in the Soviet Union. He was a doctor to many members of the Politburo, including Brezhnev. Indeed, he invited me to come to Moscow. And two years later, I was there to address a huge audience of doctors. And I couldn't see beyond the third row because of the pall of smoke. And they couldn't hear what I was talking about because they were talking to each other. <laughs> and I was utterly dismayed and disappointed. And essentially what they told me is this is a capitalist disease. It doesn't exist in the Soviet Union. Because we live in a doggy dog society of enormous competition, enormous psychological tension. And here I saw some fat man smoking away, drinking a lot of vodka. And I left the Soviet Union thinking I'll never go back. Four years later, I received a call from the Soviet embassy to consult with somebody quite ill in Moscow. I wasn't eager to go, but then I received a call from the White House, the Nixon White House, urging that I do go because of the Nixon-Brezhnev Accord, which permitted consultant interchange in medicine. When I arrived, in Moscow, I saw a patient who was dying of kidney failure. I know very little about kidney disease. And I was again astonished. It turned out they had no interest in what my judgment was about this patient. They were eager to get me to Moscow because they realized the magnitude of the issue of sudden cardiac death. And in order to expedite my coming to Moscow, they looked around who was sick who was very important. And if that person has had you know, a, a tumor, I would have been the leading surgeon to extract it. Now, this began a very interesting collaboration. It ended up between the NIH and essentially Chazov's Institute in Moscow. And I was one of the leaders in the studies on sudden cardiac death. And it was 10 years of close work in the developing forging of trust. Now, during this time, the accumulation of nuclear weapons continued. And we had roughly 16,000 megatons, we and the Russians. I mean, a, a number that boggles the imagination. A megaton is the equivalent of a million ton of dynamite. During World War II, the total ordnance was 11 megatons. This was equivalent to four tons of dynamite for every man, woman, and child on Earth, enough to kill off 100 billion people. In addition to that, the fact that was conducing to such instability was the fact that these were the payloads, the nuclear payloads were attached to missiles whose traverse from one country to the other, from the Soviet Union to the United States or 
the reverse was only 25 minutes. Preventing any judgment as to the nature of what the radar was recording. And we increasingly began to relegate decision-making to infallible computers built by fallible human beings. The whole age, the strategy of the age was mutual assured destruction, the acronym of which was MAD. And whomever I talked to trying to provoke understanding and participation and involvement in this issue, the answer was twofold. Firstly, that the nuclear weapons did their job. They kept the peace. They deterred the evil Russians. And secondly was five words that I heard over and over again. We cannot trust the Russians. We had dehumanized the whole people, and we were ready to wipe out the whole nation as they were to do the same to us. Now, <clears throat> I thought that we physicians could begin to foster trust and demonstrate that we could work together. I wrote to Chazov to become involved, to launch an organization. Initially, we intended merely a Soviet-American organization of physicians. And he was totally uninterested. He realized that we were Don Quixote-like flailing at windmills. He thought his career would be destroyed. And one evening, in utter despair, with my wife Louise right there, I sort of lost my cool, and I said, Eugene, you are not the great doctor. You pretend you're an utter opportunist. And he stalked out of the room, and my wife says, that was the most stupid thing I've ever heard you say, and I said plenty of stupid things in my life. And I thought that was the end. Next morning, he called me. He said, let's work together. What happened that night, my sort of suspicious American mind was he called Brezhnev, and Brezhnev says, do it. It gives us an opportunity to connect, penetrate, God knows what. But in actuality, later on, when at a heavy drinking party, he recalled that time, and he said, I came home, and my daughter, young daughter, who was a physician, said, Dad, you." look so tired, you work too hard. He says, I just met an American who said I didn't work hard enough. She says, you know those crazy Americans, they're workaholics, they have no sense of living. And then she was very curious. She said, what did the Americans say? And he told her, and she thought for a while, and she says, Dad, I agree with the American, not for your sake, not for my sake, but for the sake of your grandson, who's four months old. And that night, he spent a sleepless night, he said, and the next day, he said, let's work together. Now, <clears throat> doctors were well equipped by virtue of a shared traditions, shared language, 
shared literature, shared values. And in fact, if you look at the history of the Cold War during the height of it, American and Soviet doctors played a key role under the aegis of the World Health Organization in wiping out smallpox. And that saves one and a half million lives a year. We went ahead and to our surprise, we started with just Chaza for myself. And within five years, we had 150,000 members worldwide, eventually to grow to 200,000 in 70 nations, never in history at an organization burgeoned so rapidly. What we did was, in retrospect, seems impossible, phenomenal, wild in every aspect. We had an annual World Congress in some city in the world. These congresses were huge. The first one we had in Washington began with 70 people. The sixth congress in Cologne had 6,000 doctors participating. The congresses were cultural events. We attracted leading political leaders. We got an annual message of greeting from the Pope. We had, we were driven by runaway imagination of our membership. We engaged, in you, you name it, we did it. We had doctors, Soviet and American doctors, kayaking off the coast of Maine, climbing Mount Elbrus in the Caucasus. We launched a music series in Berlin, which 350 million people listened to those concerts, both jazz and classical, which is still producing CDs. Now we're in our 110th CD. We had children sign, write letters to Reagan and Brezhnev saying, "We please let us grow up. We had a million doctors sign petitions. We had floating lanterns down the Rhine, Danube, and Volga. We had doctors become citizen journalists because the major problem we faced was reaching the American public. We were totally blocked out from the media, totally. We had one favorable editorial when the movement was launched in the New York Times, and thereafter there was a big shutout. So part of the strategy was to gain your attention, to let you know what we were doing, and that was next to impossible. I once complained to the editor of the Boston Globe, and she said to me, Dr. Lown, I said, how can you have democracy if the people are uninformed? She says, Dr. Lown will give you front page coverage if you emulate yourself in the Boston Commons the way the Buddhist monks did. <laughs> now, we in addition developed a concept of accidental nuclear war. The fact that at any one moment, very sick Americans with psychologic problems were sitting at silos and drunk Russians. Because in the Soviet Union, we had ample evidence that 30% of the population was drunk at any one time. It was a f Now, <clears throat> we also did something extraordinary. Where Russia was censored, 
you couldn't speak on their television. And one day when I was visiting in Moscow, and by this time I was visiting in Moscow many times a year, Carl Sagan was in Moscow, and we both went to the American Embassy. As I walked in, the American ambassador singled me out, and he pointed a finger at me. His name was Arthur Hartman, very distinguished American Foreign Service worker. He says, Laun, you're betraying democracy. You're undermining the resolve of the American people by frightening them out of their wits about nuclear weapons. I say, but the Russians are publishing our literature. He says, publication doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is television. So quite blithely, I said, oh, so we'll be on Soviet television. He looked at me as though I was a dunce. He says, once a year, I'm permitted to be on Soviet television on the 4th of July for 10 minutes. And I have to permit, submit my script two weeks ahead of time. And if I deviate in some sentence, I'm off the air. I felt mortified, insulted. And when I got back to the United States, I flew to Washington and met with Ambassador, Soviet Ambassador Dobrynin. I said, we must be on Soviet television. And I explained to him why. He shrugged his shoulders. He says, that's beyond me. But why are you turning to me? You have much more powerful friends in Moscow. I said, such as, he says, Eugene Chazov. And he handed me a piece of embassy stationery. He says, you write him a letter, and I'll assure you it'll be, it'll be delivered tomorrow. I wrote Chazov a letter, and Chazov replied, we are on will be on television on June 26th, 1982. That happened to be the day when a World Congress in Cardiology was convening in Moscow, and he knew that I and my, some of our colleagues will be there. We were on Soviet television for one hour, totally uncensored. And it reached 100 million people. It was rebroadcast over 11 time zones. When we flew that video to the United States and tried to have it shown at the same time in the United States, none of the major broadcasting outlets, NBC, CBS, CNN, they refused to look at it. We were willing to give them a scoop before this to broadcast at the same time as the Soviets. When sometimes later I was in Holland lecturing, I encountered a Soviet professor of medicine. And she said to me, Dr. Laun, this was a remarkable broadcast. Nearly everyone, not nearly, she says, everyone in the Soviet Union watched it. I said, you're a scientist. What is your evidence? She says, during the whole hour, my teenage daughter, Masha, did not receive even one telephone call. <laughs> we went further than merely talking about the threat. We outlined a policy of how to deal with it. 
and we called it the medical prescription. And the logic of that prescription was very simple. Begin with deeds rather than indulging negotiations. Stop negotiating. Because by that time, the US and the Soviets had had 3,700 negotiations, and no progress had been made. In large part because those were secret, and they had military people doing the negotiating, it was unlikely without people knowing what's going on, without the locomotive of history being decoupled, the, the, the train was not moving. Our suggestion was let's begin with deeds and let people's movement compel reciprocation and then call in the specialist. Never let specialists in when you're dealing with policy issues. Call them in when you're dealing with minutia once the political, big political decisions had been reached. And fortunately, the Soviets, or especially Gorbachev, listened to us. Now, you might think that this type of work would have received not praise, but at least not an onslaught, such as we got from the United States and Western Europe and NATO countries. We were reviled as KGB dupes, as communist apologists, as people who were undermining democracy, as I already mentioned. President Reagan refused to meet with us. We were regarded as pawns of the Kremlin. When we received the Nobel Prize, nobody from the US Embassy showed up. And the one redeeming aspect was that I received a letter from that great American, Linus Pauling, who received two Nobel Prizes. And his letter was a treasure to be framed. It was one line. He wrote, Laun, exclamation mark. Don't be upset. No one showed up for me either, period. <laughs> the Senate passed a resolution, 243, sponsored by Alan Simpson and supported by Robert Dole, Alfonso D'Amato, and New Hampshire Senator Humphreys to ask the Nobel Committee to stop the award. NATO launched a big campaign led by Helmut Kohl, who appealed to the Nobel Committee to rescind the prize. And what happened then is fate was smiling at our movement because German television confronted the head of the Nobel Committee, a very wise Norwegian by the name of Jacob Swerdup. They say, did it ever happen? that the head of a government appealed to the Nobel Committee to withdraw a prize, and he looked and looked at the ceiling and looked puzzled. He said, oh, yes, Adolf Hitler. <laughs> Adolf Hitler asked that the prize be recalled for von Karl von Osiecki, the great peace activist who was floundering in a concentration camp where he died. When this was broadcast in Germany, 
the Germans lost all their fervor in opposing us. The book is full of such narrative tales of what transpired. And one of the interesting things that I still find difficult if made into a movie would be regarded as far-fetched. During the Nobel Peace Prize activities, there is a press conference. And at the press conference, as 200 reporters were primarily assaulting Chazov in words that were unbelievable, that he was a cad, a rogue, a thug, this very distinguished Soviet physician. And it was Bedlam, and I was chairman of the meeting. At this point, I saw a, of course, somebody raise his hand, stand up, and fall over in cardiac arrest. And fortunately, the place was full of doctors, too. And resuscitation began. Chazov and I were the first to begin to resuscitate. But the, the press wasn't interested in resuscitating something. They were interested in getting an image. So they pushed the doctors away to get an image of the dead man lying on the floor. Well, and then I saw rolling in the various instruments that I developed. I found it hard to believe. And we couldn't resuscitate him. I was nearly in tears because that became symbolic of who we are, what we tried to do. And I then said, when facing a medical catastrophe, doctors of diverse backgrounds, of differing cultures, and opposed political persuasions cooperate to save a human life. They don't care whether the victim was saint or sinner. They respond without hesitation to a human being in distress. The world is now similarly threatened with sudden death. We physicians are responding compelled by values evolved of the millennia. IPPNW, that is the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, is nothing more than medical professionalism with a global human face. Somebody who read my book recently interviewing me on the radio, he says, did you prepare those remarks before the event? They read so good. Well, I didn't anticipate the event. Now, there is a third narrative in the book. And this third narrative is a mystery, a Lake Carré-like mystery you'll have to resolve by yourself, there are a lot of clues. And that is the fact that I was a victim of McCarthyism. Harvard w would not reinstate me. I had a lot of difficulties. I spent several years jobless. And certainly the FBI, the CIA, the NSA all knew about it. Yet interestingly enough, they attacked IPPNW mercilessly, but not their vulnerable leader. Why? Well, you have to read the book. There's, I'm not going to give away the punchline, but merely suggest that in 1982, at the nearly inception of our movement, 
I received a letter from the Boston Catholic Archdiocese saying that they have developed a new peace medal and I was to be the first recipient of the Cardinal Madeira's Peace Award. Now, that is extraordinarily curious because the Boston Archdiocese was noteworthy for its anti-communism. And here I was engaged in dealing with atheistic communists. Furthermore, there were a lot of people in Boston that were far more distinguished and did a lot more for peace at the time than I ever dreamt of. Of interest is the fact that once I received it, I was the first and last recipient of it. So I call this chapter, The Catholic Church Defends My Left Flank. Now, what is interesting, what I'm divulging really for the first time, is the fact that in 2001, IPPNW appealed under the Freedom of Information Act to receive its record. The Cold War is long over, and we received this document. And this document looks like that. Every page, every page, there isn't a word in this document. Every page is like this. You may photograph it. Yes. It goes on like that. Here, better one. Now, three years ago, I wrote and asked for my record, and I received this letter, which I won't read you because it's full of Kafkaesque gobbledygook. The document meet the criteria for classification set forth in subgroup paragraph B, C, and G of section 1-4, etc., etc., and remains top secret and secret. These documents are classified because their disclosure could reasonably be expected to cause exceptionally grave damage to the national security. A few weeks ago, when I persisted, I, I, I got a fat document and I was pleased. Now, at last, they sent us one of the programs of our congresses, complete program. And with it were pages that looked like that, little boxes that kids would draw, rectangles, squares, and each one said, secret. And on the side says, to be declassified in 1029, I'll let you guess what the year is, 2032. I was very grateful to receive that because it gives me a prognosis of living to 2032, at which time I'll be 110. <laughs> now, there was, there was a, I didn't, I stopped in the midst of the story. The, the Russian, the person who had a cardiac arrest was a Russian correspondent. And as the doctors were leading him out, the American doctors insisted that he had another sh electrical shock. And with this electrical shock, where the chances were nearly zero, his heart began to 
go back to normal rhythm. He had a stormy course and he recovered. And this was another part of the miracles that happened. And curiously enough, this cardiac arrest gave us prestige and recognition in Europe, which we lacked before. Norwegian press, which was vehemently opposed to the price, the next day came in, one person did what all of us couldn't do, one human being. It also led to other positive things. At the time, we sent a telegram to President Reagan and President Gorbachev asking for a meeting. Gorbachev wrote back immediately, whenever you're in Moscow, I'll be glad to meet with you. President Reagan, I'm still waiting. Now, just a word about my meeting with Gorbachev. And uh, I have so many notes, I don't know where I am. But Gorbachev met with me and Chazov. And when I walked in, he said, you know, the most remarkable television I saw yesterday. Of, and I realized that you two, Chazov and you, are not only peace activists, but you're also doctors. He says, I hear you're a specialist. He says, is it the right or left nostril you're a specialist on? And he immediately, he gained in dignity and understanding in my eyes. We had a three-hour ranging discussion on every issue conceivable. Sakharov, human rights, the nuclear issue, the North-South divide. And the point of this tale is that I called a press conference the next day. There was a room much more filled than this one. Not a single American newspaper reported on it. It is inconceivable how this could have happened. I don't understand it to this day. There are certain important lessons of this experience. Let me just orient myself. The first lesson is that, that history is forged, unlike what history books tell us, not by prime ministers, kings, generals, but by people. People make history. I learned it in numerous ways. I'll give you one, one example. And that is, I mentioned the fact that we had no possibility to connect with the White House. In the third Congress in 1982 at Amsterdam, there was a plenary session. I was chairing, I was called out by the US ambassador to Holland. And he says, Dr. Lam, will you read this letter from the White House? It was a letter from President Reagan who said, nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. And I profoundly support your movement. Now, why did it happen? This was at a time when the United States had 5,700 peace organizations. A million people marched 
in New York, the largest peace demonstration ever. And the freeze movement was growing in intensity and the politicians responded to it. A second lesson which we began to understand is the might of the military in shaping American foreign policy and American media and many other aspects of our lives. The American military budget now is, this year I think is close to a trillion. And the Cold War, which most Americans deem as we won, no, we lost it. The Russians lost it worse. We lost it because it cost us $11 trillion. We gained an imperial presidency. We began the events that led to Vietnam, led to Iraq, and led to Bush. None of these things, I believe, would have happened without the Cold War. It also taught me about the fact that, as Orwell once said, those who control the past control the future, and those who control the present control the past. And in what you see here is that we have actually no past. American people have no past because we're an amnesiac, amnesiac nation. And we have, it is curious when you talk to young people and even older people, how little they know of what happened to us. And without that knowledge, we are compelled to repeat the same mistakes over and over again. Let me read from the very end of my book, if I can find it in the welter of confusion here. And I'm going to read from the from the prologue and from the epilogue. Perhaps the most important lessons in the doctor's anti-nuclear campaign is a sense of hard-headed optimism. Against the impossible odds, a small cadre of passionately committed physicians roused multitudes. Eliminating the nuclear menace is a historic challenge, questioning whether we humans have a future on planet Earth. We humans are more in need than ever before of a prescription for survival. This memoir shows that change is possible and is within reach. And now the last lines. The memoir is ultimately a call to action. Only those who see the invisible can do the impossible. This book makes visible a wide terrain where in action for another world fit for human beings becomes both challenging and possible. Thank you.
The War Beyond the Headlines Lecture Series is a collaborative project of the University of Chicago Center for International Studies and the International House Global Voices Program. The War Beyond the Headlines series aims to bring scholars and journalists together to consider international news stories and how these stories are covered. As a listener, you have come to rely on this program for in-depth analysis of major issues facing our country and our world. But we can only continue our nationally recognized coverage with support from you. Secure the future of World Beyond the Headlines programming by making your gift online at alumniservices.uchicago.edu slash giving. Please specify World Beyond the Headlines as the area of giving. The World Beyond the Headlines series is supported by the McCormick Foundation, the Norman Wade Harris Fund, and from generous contributions from listeners like you.